Welcome back to the Expository Word Podcast, where we are listening to classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. We are currently in a series from the book of 2 Samuel. We trust you will enjoy today's message as an encouragement to your faith. Let's listen now to Kimber. We don't think this way as clearly as we should, but the Bible teaches that it's impossible to have a relationship with God apart from a covenant. That is one of the reasons why we are to continue to take communion as we do, to remind ourselves that it is through Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that we have a relationship with God. It's the, we, God knows that we forget, and so we're to continually remember that. And as Steve pointed out, the physical reminders of the bread and the wine are to remind us that He died on the cross for our sins and He shed His blood for us. And so it's a sign of a covenant, a relationship with God. God had destroyed the world by a flood. He said He would never do that again. And the covenant He made with Noah, He put a rainbow in the sky. And over we see a rainbow. That's a sign today of a covenant that God won't destroy the world by a flood. Now I start off with this idea of a covenant because this is crucial to understand what our subject is about in this chapter. But I must tell you as we get started how happy I am that we are out of that big long portion from chapter 11 through chapter 20 where David's sin, just the results of it just keep coming up. And I felt like we were in a whole new book of the Bible in my studies this week because we're in this new section. We're really on the appendix. This is the appendix. And if you remember, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is really one book. And the writer that started way back in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is now done. The story has been told. We finished up last week. But he adds four more chapters, 21 through 25. And those chapters are given as an appendix. There are six episodes, and these chapters summarize things that have gone on during David's reign. And they tell us some of the high points of David. They're written in a very favorable fashion towards David. And it's to help us to see that this man after the heart of God had inherited certain problems and tried to fix them and then brought some of his own problems on the scene, but then repented. And so we're going to see some very, very interesting things. In fact, the way the writer breaks it down for you, like this, this is typical of the writers in the day, on this appendix, as you can see. And you'll notice on this overhead that A and A match each other. For instance, chapter 21, the Lord's wrath against Israel. Chapter 24, the Lord's wrath against Israel. You'll notice B is David's heroes, 21, 15 through 22. The chapter will still end today. And then David's mighty men are listed. And then the matching C's, in this poetic way the writer puts it, it's David's songs of praise. Next week we will study really the 18th Psalm. That's what that is, with a little revision. And then you'll see David's last words, 23, 1 through 7. And so this is the breakdown of what we have before us for the next several weeks as we finish up this book of 2 Samuel. Now, having said that, you've got to remember that we are now in a story that is going to be difficult to listen to. And I also want you to remember that this, we're not exactly sure when this story took place, but we do know this. If you remember 2 Samuel, you remember in chapter 9, David made a covenant with Mephibosheth. This story took place sometime after chapter 9 and sometime before Absalom's rebellion. So somewhere in that period, in other words, what we're about to read took place some 30 years into David's reign as king. Now with that in mind, I want us to read the first 14 verses of chapter 21. And hang on to your seats. Remember, this is the Bible. During the reign of David, there was a famine 
for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house, and it's because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul and his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. Well, what do you want me to do for you, David asked. And they answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ai's daughter Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, daughter with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Moholathite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed and exposed them on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on their bodies, she did not let the birds of the air touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Ai's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh Gilead. They had taken them secretly from the public square at Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hung them after they had struck Saul down at Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. Now, wow, what a story. If you read this with any kind of thinking cap on at all today, and you're a normal thinking person living in westernized America here, you would start to reel in your thinking. Because this is not the way we think. This is, almost everything about this chapter is foreign to us. For instance, the idea of blood guilt seems to be weird in light of the fact that Jesus said, love your enemies. And so here you see people asking for seven men to be killed for some event that happened 30 years ago. Sort of hard to understand. It's also hard to understand when we, we're so into individual responsibility, we should be more into it really, but, but we're so, we still think about my actions and God, I answer to God, that sometimes it's hard for us to deal with corporate judgment. And in this chapter, you see Saul having done a terrible offense to a group of people, and his sons get killed years later for what the father did. And we sort of go, that's strange. And by the way, the idea of corporate judgment, if I had to say the typical person thinking through the Bible in American, in American way, if, if you had to say one thing that you don't understand is this. We don't think corporately of God's judgment. We think, I sin, God deals with me. And certainly there is that case. But the Bible also teaches, my friend, listen, that our sin affects many other people. For instance, David's sin and all those concubines got hurt. And David's sin and four of his sons died. And David's sin and 20,000 soldiers died. And there's all kinds of problems in that area. Well, here... I want you to see that Saul did something, and now years later, seven guys get put to death for something they didn't even do. 
And you sort of go, boy, that isn't fair. That doesn't seem right. But can I remind you that every one of you are guilty of sin, not just because you've committed sin, but you're guilty of sin because Adam, our great, 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 great grandfather, and more greats than that, and Eve sinned, and sin has been passed on to us, and death comes upon all men, and no matter what you say, how much you don't like it, no matter how much you scream, that's not fair, you're guilty because Adam and Eve sinned. And the whole human race has been condemned because of that. Now, another thing, in our day of high science and high technology, we almost laugh. I'm surprised some of you didn't go, ah, you got to be kidding me. There was a famine in the land, and they thought it was because of sin? You mean to tell me there's some connection between morality and, and the weather? Ha, ah, you got to be kidding. That's some old-fashioned thing. Who in the world would believe in that? But you see, every verse of the Bible was written in a cultural context. And for us to properly understand the Bible, we must know the culture in which it is written and understand it. And so it is included, uh, and this story is included. Now, let me explain what happens. Let's go back to verse 1 and look at this. In verse 1, it says, During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. Now, please understand that they don't have supermarkets like we have. I mean, they had marketplaces. But they didn't have supermarkets, and, and food, and, and 90% of the people were farmers, and they looked continually for rain and for crops to grow, and they continually prayed for that. And so after one year of famine, people were starting to question, I wonder what we did. Is there something wrong? Is God mad at us? And after the second year of famine, there was a real stir. By the end of the third year, it's so serious, no question, pressure was being put on David as the king. Would you go to God for us? What is going on? Three years of famine, there's something wrong here. And so David goes and seeks the face of the Lord. Now the way he did this is through the uh, ephod where they had the, the casting of the lots. And David officially, through the high priest, asked the Lord some questions. And look at the answer that he gets there in verse 1. He sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, clear answer, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house, it is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now this is amazing because we know that he doesn't put Mephibosheth to death later on in this chapter because he made a covenant with him. So this is years into David's reign as king. And years into David's reign as king, suddenly there's a famine in the land. And the famine is because of something the first king did years ago. I mean, that would be like today if there was a famine in our land and we sought the Lord and he said it was because of what Eisenhower did. We would say, what? It was sort of that type of situation. We're going back and we don't think this way. This is contrary to our minds. Now, he says they put the Gibeonites to death. Now let me explain. There is no record in the Bible of Saul doing anything to the Gibeonites. The only even possible clue we get is in 1 Samuel 22, when Saul one day is telling people if they'll do certain things for him, he'll give them all this land. And we sort of scratch our heads and say, Saul, you don't have any land. You're not that wealthy of a king yet. How can you be giving all this land out? Maybe he got it from the Gibeonites. We don't know. That's about the only clue. But here's what happened. The Gibeonites were part of the ites. Remember, the, the, the land of Israel, the promised land, was filled with ites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites. You remember all those ites? Amalekites, all those guys? Well, they were there in the land. And let me explain to you, I, I took in the first service time to read the entire chapter, the ninth chapter of Joshua, but I just want to tell you the story. It'll, it'll be a little faster, and I think uh, I can, I, we can still make the point clear. But this whole verse 1 is dependent on chapter 9 of Joshua. Where's Joshua? Well, let's just think in our minds. We're in 2 Samuel, go back through 1 Samuel, go back through Judges, go back through Joshua. You back up 400 years. 400 years! We're going back 400 years in this verse. And in that day, here's what happened. All of the ites in the lands got together and they had a meeting. And they said, these guys are coming like an F5 tornado. 
I mean, they crossed into the Jordan River, and the Jordan River backed up 15 miles. They went to Jericho, one of our strong towns, and the walls blew outward. Then they attacked Ai, and they killed everybody at Ai. These guys are powerful, and there was all kinds of reports going on about the strength of Israel and all the things they had done before they crossed the Jordan with Bashan and Og and these guys. And so they all got together, and they said, we, let's go fight them, except one of the ites called the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites, who lived very close and were one of the next towns that Israel was about to attack, the people of God, they got all of their soldiers together, and they dressed them up in old clothes, almost like Halloween, and they got old wineskins, and they got old shoes, and they got old moldy bread, and they met Israel, and they walked up to them, and they said, peace, peace. They go, we are from a distant country, and we have heard about the great things that God has done for you, and we want you to know that we've come to serve your God, and we're come to, to be your servants. And Joshua goes, oh yeah? How do we know that's true? And they go, look at our bread. When we first left, this was warm. Now it's all brittle and ugly. And they look at our sandals. These were brand new. We just came from the shoe store. And, and, and now look at them. They're all moldy. They're not moldy. That's the bread that was moldy. They're all whatever old shoes look like. That's what they are. Look at them. And they say, look at our clothes. Our clothes, look how bad they are. We've come as long distance. We're tired. We're here to make peace. We've come from afar. We're not near because, see, the people of Israel were under a command of God to get all the ites out. And so if they were one of the ites that were in, they had to get out. So they said they were out so they could stay in. Okay? Do you understand that? Are you with me? All right? Hope if you're taking notes, I can just see them out, in, and out, ites, ites, out or in. All right? But that's the point. That's the story. Now listen. Here's what happened. It says this clearly. Listen. It says they inspected the clothes, they looked at the bread, they looked at their sandals, and they did not inquire of the Lord. And they made, Joshua made a peace treaty with the Gibeonites. Three days later, Israel gets the news. The Gibeonites live in the next town over. And Joshua goes, why did you do this? And they go, because we'd rather be servants than dead. Spare us. And all Israel started grumbling, and the leadership and the, and the armies gathered around the Gibeonite towns, and the leadership said, wait a minute, we made an oath. We cannot attack these people. We made a covenant with them. And they back off, and they become water bucket carriers and woodcutters in Israel, and they become servants. So for the last 400 years, based on this covenant, they were the ites that were in, and they were allowed in as servants. Now what happened, if you read this text that we looked at this morning, you will see that Saul in his zeal, one day, Saul being the king, being emotional and out of control, God told him to wipe out the Amalekites, he doesn't do it. God has a covenant with the Gibeonites, and he wipes them out. So here were these servant people, and Saul one day said, let's get these ites out of here, and he sort of blew off the covenant of Joshua, and he wipes out the Gibeonites so that they had no place to stay. And they were just many of them were killed. Well, not too many people thought about it. This is a wicked, rough day and age. People are getting killed all the time. If you stayed with us, there's been heads flying over walls and people dying and all kinds of things going on all throughout the book of Samuel, right? So no one really thinks about it, except one day, 20, 30 years later, on the third year of the famine, the crops are not growing, They're getting, the, the resources are getting down, and David seeks to face of the Lord and says, Lord, what's going on? He says, it's because of what Saul did to the Gibeonites. You're going to... Now, there's so much to say. we got six points to make today. There's so much to say. We only got through point one in the first service. So that's as far as we're going to go, but I want you to see this. 
God says it's because of the Gibeonites. David turns to the Gibeonites and says, Gibeonites, what do you want us to do? And they say, money won't do it. And he says, well, and they're, and they're such servants, they say, well, we don't have the right to ask for blood. And then finally he says, well, what do you want? They go, okay, if you really want to know, give us seven of Saul's sons. Well, David says, all right. He gets two of Saul's sons and five of Saul's grandsons. And they give them to the Gibeonites. They take them up to a hill, and they do ritual execution murders. Seven guys get laid down. Their throats get sliced. They're killed. And they are, le- they're, listen, the, again, our Western minds don't get this. They are left to rot on the hillside. Rizpah, the mother of two of the sons, Saul's concubine, she obviously knows about this. The one guy that was spared was Mephibosheth. There was another guy named Mephibosheth that got killed. You know, in family, sometimes everyone has the first name. and They, they did it there. Or sometimes that happens. But anyway, she goes out there to this hillside, and you know what she does? Now listen, it says they did this at the beginning of barley harvest. That means in early April. The rains in Israel don't come till October. From early April until October, this lady was out there on the hillside, and you know what she had? Some sticks in her hands. And when the birds came down, it, it was the stinking, decaying, rotten bodies. She was not allowed to touch them because this is part of the, the, the agreement. She beats the birds off with a stick, and at night when the wild animals come to try to get them, she knocks the wild animals off. And guess what? The text says, look at the last part of verse 14. Look what it says. It says, after that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. Okay. Now, in other words, it worked. It worked. Now, I'd like to ask this question to you. This, I really think a chapter like this should stretch your mind. I think a chapter like this should test your faith. I think you should feel a little squeamish. You could say, what kind of people do you think we are? You're telling us a story like this? That's, that's sort of gross. Well, this, this chapter is so full of outstanding application points. How, how is this supposed to apply to you? Please, let me remind, don't turn your minds off right here. Please look. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. This was written to teach us something. Friends, believe me, there is a lesson here today for all of you. Now watch this. All Scripture, including 2 Samuel 21, 1-14, through is God-breathed, breathed out by God. It's not just a story. There's a point to it. It's useful to teach you, to rebuke you, to correct you, and to train you in righteousness so that you can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I want to tell you, it is so amazing, the richness in this passage. And I want you to see what it is. Here it is. Here is application point number one. This is all we got to in first service. But I want you to see this. Of first importance, we see the importance of keeping a covenant and the seriousness of breaking a covenant. All through this chapter, David is painted as the guy who keeps the covenant. He keeps the covenant with Jonathan towards Mephibosheth. He keeps the covenant with the Gibeonites. The writer is trying to get you to see, now listen, he's trying to get you to see David was serious. A man after the heart of God is a man who keeps his covenants. Saul, the Antichrist picture of the Old Testament, is a guy that doesn't care about God and doesn't care about covenants. He's a guy that's all the time making rash vows. No one will eat anything until all these guys are destroyed. Remember, Jonathan had to break that one because it was a rash. And he's also the guy that breaks 
long-standing covenants. God said, all right, don't ever touch the Gibeonites. Let them be your servants. And he goes in and there's a lot of bloodshed and Saul wipes them out. By the way, do you remember the story when Shimei is cursing David as he's living in the city? What does Shimei call him? You man of blood? Probably referring to these seven men dying on the hillside. A lot of people in Israel thought it was David taking the vengeance. This writer is trying to get you to see it wasn't David taking the vengeance. David was saving Israel. God was taking his vengeance out on Israel for the sin of Saul. And David did something to stop it. Now please understand that's what the writer, that's the, that's the point of the writer. That's what he's trying to get you to see. So all through this, you see Saul being the covenant breaker, David being the covenant keeper. Now, this, without question, that's what this chapter is about, being true to the covenants that you make. God places a high value. He deeply regards promises that are made. Covenants on this level, watch everybody, this level. A lot of Christians think, I've got this relationship with God this way, that's all that matters. Not so. Everything from the Bible says that this relationship affects this relationship. And in fact, the Bible says this relationship should be a reflection of this relationship. Constantly, the way we treat people, it comes directly from the result, the way we see how God has treated us. And so it's so important that we would see that our word and the commitments and the, and the, the covenants that we enter into are very seriously taken by God. He places a high value on them. He regards them deeply. He is the God who cannot lie. He is the God whose word cannot be broken, and He expects some reflection of that in His people. Even if you enter a covenant with an unbeliever, even if you enter a covenant and you were tricked into it or deceived into it, even if you were lied to before you got into that covenant, even if others before you got you into it. Now, isn't this strange? You thought that the, the cultural setting was strange. Now you're listening to words and you're going, this is really strange, because we live in the day and age of lawsuits. We in the day and age where pro athletes will sign a seven-year, $27 million contract. And then on their third year of that contract, they'll have an outstanding season. And they'll look around, and in the top 100 athletes being paid in their league, they've dropped to number 27. But they've had one of the top 10 years, so they say, I'm not going to work anymore. I'm not going to, I know I signed my name to $27 million over seven years, but who could live on that? <laughs> so what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to renegotiate. I'm not showing up for work. In other words, it doesn't matter if we say, and we all worship these guys, oh, they're wonderful people. And we don't do anything about it when they spit in the face of umpires. And we just got this completely view today that you can just sort of do whatever you want, it doesn't matter. Well, that's not true with God. How about marriage vows? We make a covenant before God. I try to underscore this heavily. And when you're making these promises, you're promising to be faithful to that person no matter what. And people don't believe it. They say, oh, I know, and they sort of got their stars in my eyes. It's going to be wonderful and everything. But, and then they come in just a few months or a few years. I didn't know I meant that. You mean you, when you said for better or for worse, you meant better or worse? <laughs> Lawsuits, broken promises are as common as rain in Indianapolis in the summertime. Look what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures say this. The psalmist is writing about who is going to dwell on God's holy hill. Who's a Christian? Who's a person after the heart of God? Who's somebody that's really living the life? Watch this. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? All right, here we go. You ready? He whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart, who has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong, and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord. Get this. Are you ready? Tell me if it stands out to you who keeps his oath even when it hurts. 
Who is a godly person? A godly person enters into a covenant with somebody, enters into an oath relationship with somebody, and he keeps it even to his own hurt. Even when they have to sacrifice to do it. Even when they say, oh, I, went, I didn't know I was getting into it this deep. Oh, I didn't know that it was going to turn out this bad. I was expecting it to work out this way, but it went that way. But you see, when you enter into a covenant, you're meant to keep it. Even if it hurts. We live in a day when people don't, their word means nothing. Remember the old businessmen, they used to say, I remember the day when all you needed was a man's handshake. Those are long gone, right? Those are long gone. How about this? This is a passage. Every premarital counseling I've ever done in my entire life, I've started off with this passage, first session. I don't do premarital counseling much anymore because we have others that can do it. It got to be too many. But I want you to see this. Those of you that I've married, you can remember that I went over this with you. It's from Jeremiah chapter 9, and this is what it says. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord that exercises kindness, righteousness, and justice on the earth, and in these things I delight. Now I want to show you something. It's great to have wisdom, but don't say hallelujah about wisdom. It's great to have strength, but don't say hallelujah about strength. That's the Hebrew word. It's great to have riches, but don't say hallelujah about riches. There's something more than wisdom and riches and health. What is it? Well, if you're going to say hallelujah, here's what you should say hallelujah about. That you understand and know me. If you really, really want to understand something that you can rejoice in and say hallelujah about, it's not the home you live in, it's not how much money you make, if you're, it's not how healthy you are, or how strong you are, or how smart you are. What, what really matters is that do you know God? Now stop and think about this a second. Okay, Kim, fine, tell me. Tell me something about God. I want to know. Him. What's he like? Tell me one thing about him. All right, I will. Watch. You ready? That he understands me that I am the Lord who exercises, who practices kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. See the word exercise? This is what I'm like. I'm a God of kindness. See the word kindness? That's the word hased. That's the word that really is translated like this. Steadfast covenant loyalty. You want to know something about God Almighty? You want to know what the God who made this world, the God that made you? Here's something. He is steadfastly loyal to the covenants He makes. He is the God who will not let go of you. He is the God who is with you always, even to the end of the age. He is the God that, that is, is faithful. And we can sing, great is thy faithfulness. He's a God that when He promises to save you, you can be assured He will save you. And if you're one of His children and He saved you and you start to go astray, He will discipline you. If you're the kind of people that think you're a Christian, you can live a straight life, and there's no discipline, then you ought to question whether or not you're a Christian. But here it is. He's a God that exercises steadfast covenant loyalty. He's, he's faithful. He's committed to His people. But watch this. Watch. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. There's people that they say, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I don't really do anything special for God. If you want to do something special for God... Be married for 25 years. And after 25 years, don't look at another woman because you're committed to your wife. And you know what God does? The Almighty God who puts billions of galaxies in the universe, who creates the world so one little area of science, we can't, He can blow us away in one little area of science, the greatest minds on the earth. That God looks down at a man in the United States of America in 1996 being faithful to his wife in, in, in action, in truth, and in words, and in thoughts. And he goes, I delight. I'm so happy. There's somebody reflecting my glory on the earth. I love that. 
And God Almighty, stop and think about this. God Almighty is delights. What do you say? I wish I had a reason to live. I don't have any reason to live. What about this for a reason to live? The way you treat your those that you've entered a covenant with delights the Almighty God. Oh, my friends, I don't know about you, but that puts a reason into living. You don't have to go be a missionary. I mean, I hope we do have missionaries. And you don't have to be a pastor, and I hope we do have pastors. But you can bring delight to the heart of God by being faithful and loyal to the marriage covenant. Isn't it funny how our hearts deceive us? We get a little frustrated. We think, oh, I wish I was out there doing something great and sacrificial for the Lord. And then right there is your own wife, and you're going, you know, if I didn't have the old bag with me, I'd be doing that. You see how we miss it? Look what Malachi says. Look at this. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. Malachi is writing, you don't love me. Here's the the message of Malachi. You don't love me. I love you and you don't love me. That's what God's saying. Now watch this. You flood the Lord's altar with your tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. God's distancing himself from Israel. Why? You ask why? It's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you've broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his, and why one? Because he's seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in spirit. Do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord Almighty, God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence, as well as with garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourselves in spirit. You know what these men were doing? They were divorcing their wives, they were divorcing their wives, and they were beating their wives. And God says, I hate it. Now please, as your pastor, I've got to say this right now. I know there are a lot of you sitting in this room and you've been in a divorce, you've, you are divorced, you're on your second or third or fourth marriage, you've been going through it. I'm not, I'm not trying to berate you and beat you and say, ah, you're going to be barren and God's going to judge you the rest of your life. I do know His mercy endures forever and I want you to t- repent of your sins and be faithful to the spouse that you have now. But I am talking to the people here today as preventative medicine. And I'm trying to get you to see that it is important to God Almighty. He says, I hate it when people break their cup. The number one arena in which I'm looking at covenants now in the transition from 2 Samuel to us is in marriage. And God hates it when you break your covenant with Him. He says, the way you treat your wife violently, the way you're divorcing her, I can't stand it. And because you do that, I'm distancing myself from you. In other words, He's saying this, the way you're treating your wife is not a reflection of the way I've treated you in my covenant. And the way you treat your earth, these kind of covenants with Gibeonites and your wives and your spouses and your husbands and, and others you've entered contracts with, this way ought to reflect this. Now that is so important for us to get this in this day. In, in, in the sign of the last days, one of the signs of the last days, the terrible times are going to come is because there's two words in this list of all these things that have to do with breaking covenants. People will not keep their word. People will rashly enter into covenants. People will not follow through. And this is the reason why life will be so terrible because you can't trust anybody. My friend shared with me a verse recently. He says, don't be a respecter of persons. For a piece of bread, a man will transgress. Now today, my heart is heavy on this point. Because today, every excuse is given. Every rationalization is made. All the time, I hear things like this. Well, now, pastor, you don't understand. We're not going to make it. And here's why God wasn't in it when we got married. That's not the person I married. You know, I've said that one so many times, I've worn you out with it. But I I hear this all the time, and I still hear it. I didn't know what they were really like. We were not mature enough for our vows. They led me to believe something different. They led me to believe they were a person they really weren't. 
or they weren't living for the Lord. Now let me just ask you, what did the Gibeonites do? The Gibeonites deceived them. The Gibeonites lied to them. The Gibeonites did everything to make them think they were somebody they weren't. And Joshua, when they, everyone was grumbling, he says, let's go get those stinking liars. They're just one of the ites that should be out and they're in. And Joshua says, no, we made a commitment. Even though we were tricked and lied to, we made a commitment. And think of this. Think of how God's perspective on this. 400 years later, Saul goes, well, I'm going to do something. I don't care about Joshua's covenant. I'm going to go to these ites. Get those Gibeonites. And they wipe them out. And years go by and God says, I'm still mad at Israel for what they did to the Gibeonites. Now, wait a minute. This almost You, you just have to stop and think, boy, covenants must be important to God because who's this covenant people? Israel. Who are the Gibeonites? Nothing but paganites. That's all they are. And yet God says, I'm ticked with my people for the way they treated the pagans. Now, isn't that interesting? The church runs around going, the pagans aren't treating us right. But how about the way we treat the pagans? You know, God's concerned about that. Stop and think with me. Let's just say that you got married. And you come to this aisle here and you get married. And as you stand there, I mean, you, you only met the girl just a few weeks before, but she said she was a Christian. And she told you she was 25 years old. And you never really looked too closely because you were so in love. Because you were so in love. And let's just say that you get married to her. Now listen to me. You get married to her and on the third day of your honeymoon, all of a sudden you find out she's not 25 years old. She's 75 years old. And what you thought were beautiful legs, one was real and one was wooden. And as you see her taking her teeth out and putting them on the counter and pulling her hair off, uh, you go, what did I do? Can I tell you? That's what the Gibeonites did to Israel. And God still was mad when Israel broke the covenant. God expects you to be faithful to your word. God expects you to keep the covenant you enter. There are no excuses, no matter how hard it gets. People say, well, we didn't really know the Lord, or we weren't seeking the Lord. Well, can I tell you? Either did Israel. They looked at the shoes, they looked at the broken bread, they looked at the clothes, but they did not inquire of the Lord. And even if you did not inquire of the Lord and you got yourself in some covenant, you can't use that as an excuse to get out. You've got to stay in it. Marshall Foster said, covenant keepers win, covenant breakers lose. Covenant breakers get broken. See, our God keeps His Word and He expects us to. If you're here today and you're single and you're not married, you're a young person, or you're a teen, or you're an adult that's single, can I tell you, you can still very much honor the marriage covenant. How? By the way you talk to people that are married, by respecting other people's marriages, you know what else you can do, my friends? Listen carefully. Please listen to me. You can keep yourself pure because you are defrauding your future marriage partner when you give your body away to someone else. Because your body is to be in that covenant relationship solely for the person you marry and no one else. And by you going around and giving your body to others, you have, according to the Scriptures in 1 Thessalonians 4, defrauded your marriage partner. 
it's not okay to be single and be promiscuous. It is not okay to sleep around or to fool around or to partially fool around. The Almighty God says, you invoke my wrath. I want purity and I want holiness out of your life. And I bought you. It's my body. It's not yours. You glorify me in it. You don't do what you want. You can help keep this by not being rash and by inquiring of the Lord and by seeking the Lord's will before you would enter a serious covenant. This chapter hits us hard about the importance of keeping our word. Now, I hope a lot of you can come back tonight. I, I, I meant to get this point in on Sunday morning, and I'm just going to take you as far as I did with the first service, but I want you to consider application number two, and we're just about finished, but just listen. Have you ever learned about your God and your relationship to Him by watching the weather report? Look at verse 1 again, would you? Look what it says. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years, so David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, it's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It's because he put the Gibeonites to death. Do you know what the Bible tells us here? Listen to this. Morality and weather sometimes reflect each other. Now, I just want to take you far enough to get you curious. But in our high technological scientific age, where all we think about is secondary causes and all those kinds of things, we have a tendency to pull back and to say, oh, come on, that's isn't that the way the pagans are in far off some country, Bunga Bunga land? Aren't they out there thinking that somehow if we uh, do some weird thing, we'll get the rain to fall? Well, I want you to come back tonight because we're going to pick up here. But I do want to say one thing as we close. and I, It's fascinatingly interesting, the other points we have. I, 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 I'm loaded for bear for these. I, I hope that you come back. But let me, let me just say this as we close. I don't understand this. I, I, I'm still learning the Bible myself. There's so much I don't know. But I will tell you this, my friends, and please, please listen to me. There is a story here that reflects the gospel message of Jesus Christ. God is mad because of what someone has done, and the only way for God to stop the famine or to stop His judgment is for blood to be shed on a hill. And seven men are taken to a hill and they're ritually sacrificed, and the text says, and then God sent the rains. And I want you to know that that reflects, in some shadowy way, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is mad. God is mad. He is. He loves us, and yet He's mad with our sin because we've rebelled against Him. And the only way our sin can be forgiven and we can enter into a covenant relationship with God is to understand that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. His blood was shed so that God's anger could be satisfied, just like these seven men died and God sent the rains. And I want you to know, if you're here this morning and you're trusting in yourself, by I'm a good person, I'm not that bad, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, that won't suffice. The only way you can be accepted by the Almighty God is to come to believe upon His Son, Jesus Christ. The Scripture says, as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God. And if you are here this morning and your heart is aching and you're empty, I would say you can have a relationship with the Almighty God through Jesus Christ. He will save you if you cry out to Him in faith and belief. Let's pray.
Our Father, we pray that You would help us to be covenant keepers, to be the kind of people that reflect in the way we treat others a growing, truer reflection of how You have treated us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ for this to happen. Amen. In a minute, I'll dismiss you. But if you have come to Christ or you would like to know about coming to Christ, would you please come and talk to somebody on staff this week? We'd like to talk to you about that. You'll be dismissed with this benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That concludes today's message from the Expository Word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.